I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. We've been uh, talking for the last couple of weeks on the book of Ephesians, and we've gotten down to chapter, in chapter 1, to, to verse 6, I think it is. This morning I'm going to be ambitious and try to get through verse 14. Ephesians chapter 1, Paul is writing a letter to the church that uh, in many ways is unlike any other letter that he wrote. It's the only letter that we have record of that he's not trying to correct a problem or address an issue, and an existing issue in the church. Um, this is the last letter that he writes to the church. There are some personal letters that he wrote to Timothy and Titus that were uh, following this one. But it's the last church letter that he wrote before he went home to be with the Lord. And as such, he seems to step back and take an overall view of the, of the church. The theme of the book is the church. And um, uh, he seems to be stepping back to take an overall big picture view of the church and its place in the world. Um, the things that he identifies to the Ephesians are of utmost importance and necessity for us to grow and mature as believers in the things, that God, the things of God and the things that God wants us to grow and develop in. So I'm going to start in uh, chapter 1, verse 3. Verses 3 through 14 is one sentence. There's no punctuation in the Greek, so it's not like there's a capital letter at the beginning and the period at the end to know this. But from the sentence structure, there's no way that it could be divided otherwise. And Paul seems to, to, to go on. I don't want to say rambling because it's not the rambling gives the idea that there's no purpose or, or goal in mind. And Paul certainly has a purpose and a goal in mind through this, uh, this sentence. But, uh, but he, he is taking such a big picture view, much more so than any other letter that he wrote, to reveal God's master plan. So in verse 3, starting in verse 3, he said, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him. In love, having predestinated us under the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he has made us accepted in the beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, wherein he has abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he has purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are in earth, even in him, in whom also we have, an obtained, we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of the glory of his glory, who first trusted in Christ, in whom you also trusted, after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after that you believed, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession under the praise of his glory. As I said, this is the, the, certainly the most flowery writing or statement that Paul ever makes in his, in his letters. And it is so all-encompassing that there's... Uh, I think I asked a question last Sunday morning if you were here. What do you get out of that? Well, there's, it's so big, there's only a couple of words that stand out to us. And so for that reason, we have to take it apart a little bit to see what he's talking about. Because each point that he makes, and he makes seven specific points about who we are or what we have in Christ Jesus. If we don't identify and stop and, and take it apart enough to identify it, then we're going to miss out on what Paul is saying by the Holy Ghost belongs to us. So let's pick up in verse 7. He is just uh, identified. He starts off, interestingly enough, he starts off with the idea of being chosen before the foundations of the world. That means before the universe was created. It talks about being predestinated or predestined to be children of God. And there's a lot of misconception and misunderstanding in the body of Christ about predestination. But he mentions it even further in this, uh, uh, this giant sentence, big picture sentence. And, um, uh, but after having said those things, 
he makes mention that uh, brings us to the, the crux of the issue, the real point, and that is our redemption in Jesus. Verse 7, in whom, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Now, this is almost word for word um, Colossians 1.14. And Colossians and Ephesians were parallel uh, books, uh, sister books, letters that were written from Paul's imprisonment, probably the second imprisonment in Rome, uh, right at the end of his life. And um, uh, the difference in Romans, uh, I'm sorry, the difference in Colossians 1.14 and this verse is that Colossians 1.14, the, the ancient manuscripts, the, the oldest and the, the most reliable text of the, uh, uh, of the scripture does not contain through his blood. This is the only scripture that Paul specifically identifies that our redemption price was the blood of Jesus in this setting. He said, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. The word redemption means the ransom. It means to buy back. Paul is saying by the Holy Ghost, and and for me that means the Holy Ghost wants us to know, that we have been bought back through his blood. Now there's two points that that, uh, are, are worth considering here in this, and that is to buy something back, you had to have it to begin with. Otherwise, it's just a purchase. Now, the Bible does say that we are the purchased possession of God, but the reason we're the purchased possession of God is because we belong to him to begin with. He lost us, not through anything of himself, but through man's transgression and sin in the Garden of Eden and had to buy us back. And the purchase price was the blood of Jesus. Man was originally created to be in the image of God. He was originally created to be the possession of God, the family of God. God breathed in him the breath of life, and he became a living soul. The only source of his life was God. His body was made. It was just a shell. And God placed the living spirit within mankind or within Adam that passed on to mankind. But Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden. Their sin, their stepping off the path, their deviation from what God told them to do caused God to lose his prized possession. Man died spiritually. He didn't just turn away from God. He didn't just drift away. He changed his nature. His spiritual nature was altered. Now the Old Testament tells us all throughout the book of Leviticus about the shedding of blood for the Old Testament sacrifices. There were a number of sacrifices that were uh, commanded to be made. The most uh, uh, familiar one, the, the big one, was the Day of Atonement. When a sacrifice was to be made, blood was to be spilled. The blood of an animal was to be spilled. Of the, the, and the animal had to be of, of perfect appearance, as perfect as they could get. It had to be examined. There couldn't be any marks or blemishes in the animal itself or in its coat or in its, in its uh, fleece or anything like that. And um, uh, as a result, God accepted that blood as a temporary sacrifice for the sins of his people. Now, the Bible says in Leviticus, it says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And the reason for that is because the life of the, uh, of the flesh is in the blood. So God accepted on a temporary basis imperfect or impure blood to cover man's sins. But that's all that could ever happen is those sins to be covered. Forgiveness, is, uh, forgiveness of sins is really an Old Testament term. In the New Testament, it's not forgiveness of sins as much as it is redemption or remission of sins. Remission of sins is the removing of them. He talks about the remission of sins here a little bit later. It's spoken of or referred to as forgiveness, but it's really the word remission. So God had to have something that could wipe away man's sin. Now, I've looked at this from a couple of different angles, and I'm not sure which way is better. On, some, uh, on, uh, on one hand, I think it might be better for us to have, been, uh, to have grown up as, uh, as Jews who had to keep the Old Testament sacrifice, the Old Covenant sacrifices, because that would make us aware of the necessity of blood, the necessity of the shedding of blood regarding sins. But then I look at the Jews and I think, well, the people that did that were so accustomed to slaughtering animals and offering blood that they didn't realize the importance or the significance of what was being done, so they took it all for granted. 
and they missed the boat completely when Jesus was, uh, was offering his own blood and the significance thereof. So I'm not sure which way is right or better. On one hand, I'm thinking it would be better if we had, had participated in some of those sacrifices because then we would realize how that God turns himself away from our sin once the shedding of blood is accomplished. And then if we understood that the remission of sins was accomplished by pure, perfect blood, the blood of the God-man Jesus, a perfect man who is the essence of God himself, then we would recognize that there's nothing that God would ever or could ever hold against us. Now, you need to realize something, folks. We let the devil beat us up so often about the things that we've done wrong. But if your sin, any sin that you commit, if any sin that you commit is greater or bad enough, maybe that's a better way to say it. If any sin that we ever commit is bad enough to put something between us and God, it's greater than the blood of Jesus. My point is very simply this. Do you realize, you should realize, how impossible it is, impossible for God to hold your sin against you because of the blood of Jesus? If we realize that, then the condemnation of the devil would be nothing. If we came to realize that, I mean really understand it, Anytime the devil, maybe the next time the devil starts trying to beat you up about what you did wrong, ask him, is it greater than the blood of Jesus? You start talking to the devil about the blood of Jesus, pretty soon you'll be by yourself. He will leave you alone. He does not want to have that conversation. But there's this underlying thought, this subliminal idea that even though we've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, there are still those things that we do that makes God not like us, or at least not like us as much. And that's impossible. In whom we have redemption. You have been bought back, repurchased by the blood of Jesus. What part of you should remain in bondage? Think of it like this. If somebody kidnaps a loved one of yours, and you pay everything that you have. You liquidate all of your assets. You, you grab every bit of money that you can get your hands on. Borrow what you don't have access to on your own. You get everything you have together. It costs you everything to pay the ransom. How would you expect that loved one to act after they're free? Wouldn't it be stupid for them to act like you don't like them? Wouldn't it be worthless? For them to hold something against themselves for ever having been caught to begin with. When you've shown your love and your care in purchasing them with everything you had. That's what the Bible says Jesus did for us. God did that by sending his own son. He gave us everything he had. Yet we walk around thinking God's mad at us. If he's mad at you, he wouldn't have given his son for you. But since he did, he's on your side and can only be on your side. In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, that's redemption of sins or remission of sins literally, according to the riches of his grace, wherein he has abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence. One uh, preacher that uh, I'm familiar with um, teaches a lot on the subject of grace. And as a result, he's, uh, uh, he, like me, uh, been, well, felt that most of the common definitions of grace come up short. The most common definition of grace that's used in the body of Christ today is unmerited favor. Well, I don't know about you, but most of the time I hear the unmerited more than I do the favor. That's the first thing that, that comes to me, and that, that's probably my religious background and, and wrong training and wrong teaching and so forth. But, uh, but that, that, the definition of grace as unmerited favor just really doesn't do it for me. If you want to call it favor, I'm okay with that. But he's, uh, he's kind of felt some of the same things over the years. And he said that the Lord really dealt with him personally about this subject. And he said as he was reading this one day, 
it came to him that for him, in his estimation, this is the greatest definition of grace. Right here in Ephesians chapter 1. According, verses 7 and 8, according to the riches of his grace wherein he has abounded toward us. He says grace is God abounding toward us. Well, that's hard to argue with. Because grace is, in, is in, uh, uh, inclusive of everything that Jesus did. The only grace, the only favor, the only abundance that there can be from God to mankind is through the blood or the finished work of Jesus. Grace, I define grace as the finished work of Jesus. But what does the finished work of Jesus do? It enables God to abound toward us in all goodness. Now here Paul talks about God abounding toward us in two specific things, wisdom and prudence. Wisdom and prudence. These words are similar, but there is a shade of difference between the two. Wisdom is the right application of knowledge. He's talking about a spiritual impartation. Paul said in in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30, he said, Christ has made unto us wisdom. Christ is made unto us wisdom. In other words, there's a, a, a seed of wisdom that becomes ours as a part of the change of nature, being born again, being made a new creature in Christ Jesus. There's an element of wisdom that can be developed and should be developed through the teaching of the Word, through meditating in the Word and putting the Word in practice in your life. But that wisdom is also followed up with prudence. Now, prudence, the word Greek word prudence really means literally means intellectual or moral insight. But in common uh, words, in common language, prudence is common sense. I'm not sure you can use that term anymore because sense doesn't seem, seem to be too common. But here's what he's trying to say. For the born-again believer who walks in the Word, for the person in Christ who lives his life according to the Word, who renews his mind to the Word, There should be a supernatural aspect to our understanding in life. I've always, I I was amazed at Brother Hagin because there would be situations and and controversies that would come up and boy, people would be arguing and they'd argue for weeks. And then somebody would put their point of view over here and somebody would make their point of view over there. And and boy, all the the Bible school students and, and some of the rest of us, we'd get caught up in this controversy and it'd be back and forth, who's right? And somebody believe they had some brand new revelation from God and somebody else would say no it's like this instead and so forth and Brother Hagin would come out with a one liner that would just settle the issue he did that all the time he'd let everybody argue about it for three or four weeks and finally said now I know there's a controversy in the body of Christ about such and such but bang 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 and in five words or less usually he'd just dismantle the whole thing and all of us that were arguing for weeks would sit there and look at each other and say Well, yeah, that has to be right. Now, what causes that? I believe that's available to every believer. That didn't happen to Brother Hagin because he's a prophet. That happened to Brother Hagin because he drew on this wisdom. He recognized and believed for this wisdom that Christ has made unto us to work work and operate with great efficiency, to flow. There should be a supernatural flow to the believer's life. And the more and more you develop yourself in the Word and train yourself in the Word and act on the Word of God, the more and more the issues, the major issues of life, the things that everybody else gets upset about should be easily settled for you. God doesn't expect us to go back and forth ping-ponging with different ideas in in life. One of the things that Paul talks about uh, later on in this, uh, this letter is not being tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine. Growing up so that we not be tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine. What is that? That's the application of wisdom. See, when you learn who you are and what belongs to you and what the Word says about certain issues that, that involve you in life, you'll be grounded. You won't be pulled away because the world says this. You won't be pulled in the other direction because the world says that. See, the world will teach you that capitalism is bad, it's evil. But the word says differently, so I don't care what the world says. The world says that global, global climate change and all that kind of stuff is going to end the world if we don't do something, meaning spend a lot of money. Well, the word says differently, so I don't care what anybody lies about the climate change. And it is a hoax, folks. It is a hoax. 
But when you know what the word says, and Paul is talking big picture here. When, when Paul is talking about God has given us wisdom, he's talking about wisdom to understand the whole thing. He's talking about wisdom to understand the, the, the plan, the purpose of God. When you know what the plan and the purpose of God is, you're not worried about what everybody else is worried about. You see things from a spiritual standpoint. I look at politics a whole lot different than I used to. I used to get all wound up about this one winning or that one losing or, or this kind of stuff. I don't care anymore because it doesn't matter because I've stepped back and s- to see what God's big picture is. And looking, looking back at where I used to be, I can see that I was putting a lot of hope and a lot of faith and a lot of trust in somebody doing the job. But there's only one person that I'm looking for to do the job now, and that's Jesus. No matter who wins, no matter who loses, no matter who gets involved, no matter who does what. Well, Pastor Mike, that sounds defeatist. I'm not defeated at all. I've just got my trust and my confidence in the right person. Yeah, but aren't you going to get involved? You bet I'm going to get involved. I'm going to vote the right way. But what if my guy doesn't win? Has God changed? Not a bit. Has the word changed? Not one bit. Paul is taking a big picture of you. He's leaving the church a big picture of you. So he says, according to the riches of his grace, God is abounded. How much is abounding? How much is that? How much all wisdom and prudence do we have? You've got access to everything that you ever need. James wrote it this way. He said, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. Now, here's something that some people will use uh, and try to create some kind of controversy or say there's a contradiction in Scripture. If 1 Corinthians one thirty says Christ has made unto us wisdom, then why in the world is James saying if you lack wisdom? Well, James is talking about a specific issue. He's saying if you count it all joy when you find yourself in diverse temptations or trouble, adversity. If you lack wisdom to know what to do in your specific issue, the adversity that you're in, then ask of God and God will give it to you. Where does that wisdom come from? It doesn't come from outside. There's not a voice that... I've never had God speak to me with a voice from heaven. Have you? I've had him say some things to me that sounded loud. And I know to pay attention, big attention to those things. Those are major issues that are coming up. But where does the wisdom come from that we ask God for? The only place that wisdom dwells, and that's in our spirits. Part of this all wisdom and prudence that's abounded to us. Wherein he has abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence. We should have the answer. We as Christians, as believers, walking in the word, should have the answers to the situations in our lives. And we do if we just know how to rely on them. How to gain access to that inner wisdom. Verse 9, having made known unto us the mystery of his will. Notice he talks about wisdom with God's master plan. Having made known unto us. Not we're hoping that he will someday. Having made known unto us the mystery of his will. Now, what's a mystery? Mystery is something that's hidden. But notice he says it's not hidden to us. There is a mystery to the will of God. The world is in the dark concerning the will of God. A lot of the church is in the dark concerning the will of God. Not because that's the way God wants it, but because they haven't developed the wisdom that God has given them through the word. But a lot of the church world, and certainly the, the, the world outside the church, is up in the air Wondering, well, what's going to happen next? How's this going to work? But because the mystery of God's will is revealed to us, we've got inside information. Inside information. I'm, I'm kind of amused as some people talking about if we don't do something, well, the Pope. Thanks for your help, sir. <laughs> On his visit to the United States here recently, his big thing was climate change. Biggest threat facing America or facing the world today is climate change, global climate change. Looks to me like it's the Muslims cutting the Christians' heads off. <laughs> but what do I know? But no, we didn't hear about that. We heard about climate change. Well, goodness gracious, if we don't spend billions and billions and billions of dollars, hundreds of billions of dollars to change the climate, which nobody's come up with an idea how you do that anyway. I mean, if, if you're going to change the climate, start with around my house. Let's just start with the city. 
But people are this doom and gloom stuff. Oh, I've got to do something about global climate change. If we don't do it, it'll be the end of the world. I don't know about you, but I've been through about five ends of the world so far. <laughs> Back in the 70s, it was the ice stuff. If we don't do something, there's going to be another ice age. That was supposed to happen by 1995, by the way. It's always this terrible stuff. Folks, the earth is not going to end until the Bible says that it's supposed to. Oh, but we're running out of resources. There's more resources to last through our generations than anybody's ever figured out. The earth is going to last through the church age. It's going to last through the tribulation when some really nasty stuff is going to happen. You'd think the, the earth's resources would be depleted by some of that kind of stuff. I mean, a third of the earth's seas are going to be dried up. But then it's going to last for another thousand years after that. So I don't know what everybody's up in arms about. See, I don't get caught up in this stuff because I know what the Bible says. The mystery of God's will has been revealed to us. So I'm not going to get caught up in all this other stuff. But see, as believers, we've got inside information. I don't expect the world to know that. I don't expect the world to accept that. If, they just, if, the, if the United Nations would read and believe Ezekiel 37 and 38, it would solve a lot of the problems. They'd have clear understanding, clear direction on what to do and how to handle things and, and who's, who means what when they say this and all the other kind of stuff. But that's been revealed to us, not the world having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he has purposed in himself. Now, folks, I want you to see a couple of things. Notice back in, uh, in verse 5, it says, God, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. In other words, because God wanted to. God made a place in Christ because he wanted to. Now look at verse 9. Having made known unto us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he has purposed in himself. He's saying the same thing because God wanted to. Paul says four times in this one sentence how much God wanted to. Not because we wanted to, although if we had good sense we would want it. But God wanted it this way. God created this plan that includes you and sets you at the right hand of, his, of uh, with sets you at His right hand alongside Jesus because He wanted to, according to the good pleasure which He has purposed in Himself. That and He's still talking about the mystery of His will being revealed. That in the dispensation of the fullness of times, dispensation means administration, fullness means completion. That in the administration of the completion of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on the earth, even in him. In other words, he's saying, here's the big picture mystery of God's will that's been revealed. That when the time is right, God's going to gather everything together under Jesus' control. Now, that can only mean two possible periods of time. It's either the millennium or after he creates the new heaven and the new earth. But he's talking about a time when there is no more evidence of the fall of man, no evidence of the sin that Adam and Eve allowed to come into the earth. For that reason, I'm thinking that it might not be the millennium because there still will be enemies of God during the millennium. Jesus will rule with a rod of iron. Why is he ruling with a rod of iron? Because there are enemies in the earth. It's not just saved people. There'll be people that want to rebel, but the penalty for rebellion is so great they'll keep it in check. But then when at the end of the millennium, there's a quick war, great war, but quick one that takes place when all of God's enemies rise up together. The devil is released. One last time, and all of God's enemies rise up together against him, and Jesus destroys them with one word from his mouth. And then there's a new heaven and a new earth. In other words, God's big picture plan that he chose from the beginning of the world, that he wanted to create from the beginning of the world, 
is something where everything is gathered together in Jesus. It's a new creation. It's a new world where there is no evidence of any sin, any trace of rebellion, disobedience, or anything that can hurt or harm. Now, folks, I would submit to you that that's a lot of what some people are trying to create here on the earth. And it'll never work. Almost 100 years ago now, John Alexander Dowie, who was greatly used of God in signs and wonders and miracles, wanted to create a city, Zion, Illinois. He wanted to create a city where the government would be Christ-centered. Now, his aim might have been good, but stuff like that never works. Some of the church is trying to do that today through politics, it looks to me. If only we could get Christian leaders in. Well, I'm all for Christian leaders. But Christian leaders are not. The Bible is true when it says what's going to happen in the world. And so much of, and there used to be a, a, a doctrine in the church, this kingdom theology stuff. Came around in the 80s, resurfaced in the 80s. And it'll resurface again before Jesus comes. But this idea, it's, it, by the way, kingdom theology is kind of an offshoot of normal Mormonism. The idea for the Mormon church is that they'll take over and run everything and run it the way it's supposed to be to create a heaven on earth. Well, folks, heaven on earth is walking in accordance with the word and operating in the blessings of God. But that's as close as you get. And Paul said heaven is far better than that. So there's no point in us thinking that anything that we do can possibly compare with what God's master plan will bring about. No way. Not even close. And it's a futile effort. That's why we have to trust in his plan. That in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on the earth, even in him. Can you imagine? Stop and think about that for a minute. I've spent a lot of time thinking about the Garden of Eden. What was the Garden of Eden like? Man, before the devil got involved and messed things up, this earth was a paradise. As I said, a lot of people seem to have the idea that if we could just follow their political ideas or whatever, then we could return to that. People seem to fall into two different categories to me. Most people that want to be left alone and operate according to goodness and moral character and so on and so forth, I'm part of those. A subcategory of those people are the ones that want to be taken, to get, taken care of by the government. They want to live their life. They want everybody to take care of them and, and, and just not have anything to do with anybody else and just live their lives and have no moral authority and just be free. The second category of people are the people that want to control things. There seems to be no middle ground between those two categories. And that's much of the, the fight that's going to take place in the last days in our culture. Because those are the people, those are the subsects or categories of people that are going to be in opposition to one another. But what Jesus is going to rule over is even better than the Garden of Eden. The Bible says that at the, at the end of the, uh, end of the millennium period, heaven comes down to the earth. A new earth is created and then heaven comes down. Paul got a glimpse of that heaven. He said he couldn't describe it. I don't know how that relates. I don't know how to relate to that. I don't know how to... How can you not describe something? See, our frame of reference is here on the earth. And anything here on the earth, we can describe by something else here on the earth. But Paul is talking about things that are so different, so unique, and so varied in their creation and their composition that there's nothing on the earth that compares to describe. That must be pretty good, wouldn't you think? 
that in the dispensation of times, the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on the earth, even in him, in whom we also have obtained an inheritance. This word inheritance is really not a good translation. It's the word heritage. He's talking about a family. Now, Paul is going to talk further on in the chapter about our inheritance. But right now, he's talking about being a family. So it reads this way in the, American, in the uh, uh, authorized version. In whom also we have obtained a heritage, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. Now, here again, he's talking about predestination. A lot of times people think that much of the church world, maybe most, I don't know. But much of the church world thinks predestination means God has chosen some for heaven and some for hell. And he's foreordained that, and that's the way it's going to be no matter what. Well, that can't be true if there are at least a dozen scriptures that refute that. So if the, if the Bible, the whole of the Bible is true, that can't be the way that it works. No, it's not the individual that's predestined for heaven or hell. It's the place in Christ. It's the position in Christ that was predestined. God predestined and chose before the foundation of the world a place in Christ through the shedding of his blood whereby mankind would and could be seated with him, Jesus, in heavenly places at the right hand of the Father. Whether the individual partakes of that and takes advantage of it is up to him. That's why Jesus said, whosoever will, let him come. He didn't say, whosoever God wills, let him come. He said, whosoever wills, let him come. That's the only way the whole of the Bible can be true. It's the only way man's will can be what the Bible says that it is. There's no other possibility. And this is what Paul is talking about. Certainly God's will is for all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God wills for all of mankind to take place or a part in that place in Christ. But God's not the one that decides. He left that up to man's choice. What God decided, what God predestined, what God foreordained is that there would be a place in Christ Jesus for all of eternity available for every one of his created men and women here on the earth. And that's what he's talking about. In whom also we have a heritage. We become part of his family. Now Paul, um, Paul can't deny who he is. Paul is a Jew. And so all of Paul's writings come from a Jewish perspective in this context. The Bible says Jesus said that God preplanned that the gospel, the good news of salvation, would go to the Jew first and then to the Gentiles. So the Jews had a preeminent place. Now they rejected it primarily and that's why it went to the Gentiles. Why the gospel went to the Gentiles. And so I guess we would have to say that today the church worldwide is predominantly a Gentile church. But that's not the way that it started. And even in Paul's day it was predominantly a Jewish church. Even though the Jews were in, during Paul's lifetime, the Jews were rejecting the gospel and it was going out and spreading to the Gentiles. During Paul's lifetime, at best, it was a 50-50 proposition worldwide between Jews and Gentiles. Probably a majority Jewish church. So when Paul's talking about a heritage, he knows that he's writing to people that understand the difference between the Jews and the Gentiles, the blessings of God that were the Jews under the old covenant. And so he spends a good deal of time even in talking about God's master plan, about the same blessings now being available to everybody. Why would he focus on that so much? See, for us, we're used to a Gentile church. So the idea is that, that the Jews had blessings that the Gentiles couldn't have. We don't get it. We think, well, we've got a, a new covenant that's established upon better promises. Most of the church doesn't understand that anyway. But we, we take scriptures like that and we think, well, what's all the big deal about the Jews? Well, the Bible was written at a time that the church was predominantly Jewish. And so when Paul's talking about a heritage, he's referring back to Abraham and Abraham's physical descendants being understood worldwide to be the people of God. There's something about these people. Not, not everybody accepted that it was God that was special about them. But everybody understood that the Jews were a different type of people than anybody else on the face of the earth. We know, and anybody that accepted the truth of the Old Testament knew even at that time that it was because God's favor was upon them. That's the point Paul's trying to make. 
He's saying that same favor of God can be upon you through Jesus. There's no blessing that the Jew had that's not the Gentiles now. For us, it might be well to say it the other way around. There's no blessing of the Gentiles through Jesus that's not available to the Jew through Jesus. But it's not through God's plan for Israel. It's not through God's covenant with Abraham. I'll bless them that bless thee and curse them that curse thee. It's not through the natural aspects of the old covenant. It's through Jesus. There's only one covenant, folks, and that's through Jesus. God doesn't have a separate covenant with Israel. I had a rabbi friend that lived in New York for a while, and then after his wife died, uh, he spent about half his time going back and forth to, to Israel, between New York and Israel. And, uh, and I got a hold of him through an online course, online Jewish course that I took, and, uh, and, and made friends with him. Somehow, somehow or another, he liked me. He was just... Well, he was as obstinate as I am, and I, I guess we just got along. And we'd have some discussions, sometimes by email, sometimes by phone. And this old guy, he was, uh, uh, well, he was 88 when he died. And um, I knew him the last maybe five years of his life. And we'd have discussions, and, and he'd talk, and he'd say, well, you Christians. And I'd say, well, you Jews. He'd say, you Christians are like this. And I said, well, you Jews are like that. And he got upset about something. He was uh, the funniest guy I ever heard. He said, we've lost more uh, people from Judaism for the, because of cheeseburgers than any other thing. <laughs> See, according to the Old Testament law, you can't eat meat with the mother's milk, which would include cheese. So cheeseburgers are forbidden under Jewish law. He said, if, if cheeseburgers were kosher, we'd have a lot more Jews, practicing Jews. And so there were, we had some wonderful conversations. But he got upset with me about something, and I was trying to get him saved. I, I did everything I knew to do to get this guy saved. And thought I had him at the edge once, and, and the conversation turned. I think he knew how close he was. He started sweating under his collar. So it turned the other way. But he said one day, uh, something about the the uh, you Christians think that God's going to take care of you and only you and Israel's left out. And I said, well, you Jews don't have a covenant with God. And boy, the, I thought he hung up on me because everything just went dead silent. He said, what did you say? I said, you Jews don't have a covenant with God today. He said, that's the most absurd thing I've ever heard. And I said, well, what do you think your covenant with God is? He said, what you know of is the Old Testament. And I said, then why aren't you making sacrifices? Well, we haven't done that since A.D. 70. I said, yeah, well, where did you see in the Old Covenant that God said, well, after A.D. 70, you can take a break. (laughs) Man, that got him. I said, you don't have a covenant. You have no covering for your sins. Israel is without covenant with God because Jesus fulfilled the old covenant. You have the opportunity to receive Jesus, the good news of salvation, and come into the family of God. But Israel's without a covenant toward God. He got so mad he did hang up on me. And he never brought up the subject again. See, folks, there's only one covenant, and that's through Jesus. We think of God doing away with the old covenant and getting, bringing in a new covenant. We think that's what Jesus was saying when he said, a new covenant I give you in my blood. There's no new covenant. It's the fulfillment of the one covenant. Started through Abraham, fulfilled through Jesus. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, doesn't the Bible say that God's going to do things for Israel at the end? Yeah, that means he's got a plan for them. But tell me anybody God doesn't have a plan for. You're going to tell me that there are nations that God doesn't have a plan for? Some of the plan as revealed in God's master plan for some of the nations is destruction. That's why we've got to reach them with the gospel. The Bible talks about a great destruction in Russia. There's a great work that needs to be done in Russia. It talks about the destruction of Syria. We need to get in and evangelize Assyria. Why do you think ISIS is where it is? 
because it's God's master plan revealed to us coming to pass before our eyes. We need to wake up and see things from a biblical perspective. Well, I want the government to do this. Well, good luck. Folks, we're living in a day where for the first time, certainly in our lifetimes, Christians have been targeted on our own soil for being a Christian. You think that's going to get better? It's going to get worse. We're living in a day where the people committing murder through abortions have openly bragged about what they're doing and selling the parts of the aborted children in the process. And half the country is closing their eyes. Half the country won't even look and see what they said. You think that's going to get better? Well, we need to elect the right person. You think he's going to be the right person? Who you think is the right person is going to be able to turn that tide? The Bible says men will get worse and worse. It's hard to imagine how much worse people can get. Turn their eyes to, to lying, dishonesty, murder. Better know who you are in him. Well, where were we? Verse 11, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance or heritage, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory. In other words, it's saying God's master plan of bringing everything under Christ in heaven and in earth is for one purpose, to show us in our position seated with Christ in the heavenlies at the right hand of God the Father to show us to be the praise of his glory. In other words, he's saying the church should be the evidence of God's goodness according to his master plan. Evidence to who? Folks, don't think that when we, when we get past the millennium and all of a sudden there's a new heaven and a new earth that then God is going to show himself strong and he's going to show his glory and the church is going to be shown to be glorious. Everybody that's going to be there is going to be the church. What are we going to do? We're going to walk around shining in the glory of God and saying, Woo, don't you look pretty. What good is that? He's talking about here. He's talking about now. He's talking about the glory of God being evidenced in us because of our position in Christ where we're seated at his right hand to be glorious here on the earth. The church is destined by God to be the evidence of his master plan at work. That we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. Now first, if there's a first, that means there's a second. So Paul is talking about one of two things. He's either talking about we who first trusted, meaning the Jews. And then the Gentiles followed after. Or he's talking about we being the first generation of believers. And then others who believed on Christ through their word being the second generation. Now, whichever way you want to go with that, it doesn't matter to me. Both are accurate and both are true. I think Paul is coming from a Jewish perspective personally, but he writes it in such a way that it could be either. So it means whether you're Jew or Gentile, this same thing is going to belong to you. Whether you're first generation or many subsequent generations of believers, the same thing belongs to you. That we should be to the praise of his glory, who first trusted in Christ, in whom you also trusted. I think he's talking to the Gentiles there, but it would apply to future generations of believers anyway. In whom also you trusted. Now this word trusted, both in verse 12 and verse 13, is literally the word hoped. We faith people kind of denigrate hope. We see so many people that misunderstand the difference between faith and hope. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for. You can't believe in something unless you have hope. But so many people try to substitute hope for faith. For example, they say, Well, I'm hoping God will heal me someday. Well, that's not faith. Or they may even say it and use faith language. They may say, I'm believing God's going to heal me someday. Well, anything that's out in the future is not faith. Anything that's in the future is hope. 
faith says it's mine, I have it now. So when Paul is talking here, he's talking about hope. He's talking about something future. He says again in verse 12, who first hoped in Christ in whom you also hoped. Now the word trusted is uh, in italics, which means the translators added it. But you can see that it fits. He's saying we hoped first and then you followed us in. In whom you also hoped after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that you believed. Notice he even follows the scriptural pattern, hope first and then believing second. So what is he saying? Well, we know he's talking to believers. We know he's talking to people that have already made Jesus the Lord of their lives. So what is he saying? He's saying there's a future activity or a future occurrence that we're all hoping for. What is that? Was when Jesus gives us our redeemed bodies. When he comes back to receive the church. When he comes back to receive the church. In whom you also hoped after that you heard the word of truth. Notice that it's the word of truth. I love that. The gospel. The good news of Jesus is the word of truth. Everything in the Bible is the word of truth. Do you see back up in 11 where it says, in whom we also have obtained a heritage being predestinated according to the purpose of him? Notice this phrase, the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. What does that mean? That means everything that happens that looks to us to be contradicting the scripture. Everything that, that, that looks to contradict every circumstance, every situation that looks to us to contradict the promises of God, God uses... Because he has predestined, he has preordained that his word is true. He has preordained for our position in Christ to be solid for eternity. He uses every circumstance, every situation according to his counsel. There's his wisdom. And his will, his spoken word, to bring everything about just the way that he said. Now those are the things the devil is trying to tell you is proof that the word doesn't work. And Paul says, this is a part of God's master plan. Peter said it this way. He said, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which troubles you. Well, what's a fiery trial that troubles us? Circumstances. Opposition to the word. The things that happen, the things that occur that make us think, oh, the word's not working. The things that happen that the devil says, speaks in your ear and says, well, that can't be true. The word can't be true because if the word was true, it wouldn't be working like this. That's the fiery trial that Peter's talking about. He said, don't think, it, don't think it's strange concerning the fiery trial that troubles you. He said, know this, that the same afflictions are accomplished in everybody. In other words, the devil works this way against everybody. But hold fast in faith. Don't let the circumstances throw you off. There is nothing that is stronger than God's love and God's will. And when God has spoken something to be, It doesn't matter how far away from the target we seem to be going. It doesn't matter how far the circumstances seem to be taking us from what the word of God promises us. It's impossible. But for the word of God to come to pass. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. Now at the time Paul is in jail. Let's say it this way. The administration is not looking favorably upon his position. A Christian is not in power. He's in jail for what he believes. He's in jail for preaching the gospel of Jesus. Because those who disagree with him have brought opposition. In other words, he's in jail because he's being persecuted as a Christian. And he said, none of this can stop the plan of God from coming to pass. I don't know where we've been, but I doubt if we've been in as dire circumstances as Paul. In whom also you also hoped, verse 13, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also that you believed, you were sealed, after that you believed, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance which is the earnest of our inheritance. Now, Paul is referring to an old world situation when he talks about seals and earnest. We think of uh, 
we think of earnest as being like earnest money or down payment on something. But a down payment isn't the final word on the subject. A down payment, if you put a down payment on a house, for example, or earnest money on a piece of property or whatever it might be, you have to fulfill the terms of the contract for that property or whatever you're putting a down payment for to really be yours. It's just the first installment, but it's not a done deal. That's not what this means. This is talking about the old world way of sealing. And here's what would happen. If somebody owned property, whether it's land, whether it's a possession of some other type, if a, if a person owned property, they would put a mark on it. It was called a seal. And that mark, even if they went away for a long period of time, that mark would prove and verify their possession of the property upon their return. If they came back and people challenged their ownership of the property, all they had to do is point to the mark. And that mark stood up as the proof of the purchased possession, proof that something belonged to them. Now, the seal under the old covenant was circumcision. It was an outward sign, a sign in the flesh. The seal under the new covenant is the Holy Spirit, that which is within us. John said it this way. He said, we know we pass from death to life because we love the brethren. How do we love the brethren? Romans 5, 5, Paul wrote to the church saying the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost at the point of the new birth. So what he's saying is that seal, the presence of the Holy Ghost on the inside of us, is the proof that we are God's possession. You ought to talk to the devil like this. See, he tries to bring up everything and every reason and every, every uh, cause for why the things of God won't work for you, why God's not on your side or whatever the case might be. Start talking to him about being God's possession. Start talking to him about the presence of the Holy Ghost being the proof that you're God's possession. He always wants to make you worry about your future. Start talking to him about his. In whom also after that you believed, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance. Now, this word inheritance is not heritage. It's a different thing. He's talking about what belongs to us. It's the earnest of our inheritance. In other words, there is an inheritance to the believer. Now, the, the inheritance he's talking about here is not the inheritance we have on the earth. He's talking about the inheritance that we'll receive as a part of Jesus return literally our redeemed bodies we have an inheritance here but there's something that we're looking for a hope that we have to receive a body that's not tainted by sin any longer that's part of our heritage and is our inheritance which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession under the praise of his glory now let me draw you back to some other scriptures that we read through verse 3. Notice it says in verse 5. According to the good pleasure of his will. Verse 6. To the praise of the glory of his grace. Verse uh, 7 says. According to the riches of his grace. Verse 9 says. According to his good pleasure. Which he has purposed in himself. Verse 11 says. According to the purpose of him. Who worketh all things. After the counsel of his own will. Verse 12. That we should be to the praise of his glory. Verse 14 under the praise of his glory. Over and over and over again, Paul talks about God's plan, God's purpose, God's love, God's choice. And each time he follows it up with to the praise of his glory. In other words, everything that he did for you is to be manifested in our lives so that it brings glory to God. God wants you healed so that it brings him glory. That doesn't mean he doesn't care about you and your healing. He does. But the purpose for him designing the plan of redemption to include healing is so that it glorifies him, so that the world sees that he's with you. God wants you to prosper abundantly to the praise of his glory. God wants the, every characteristic of redemption to be evident in your life to the praise of his glory. 
we have, in my opinion, we have a responsibility to live out the terms of salvation to the praise of his glory. Now, the devil tries to rob you of those things, trying to say you're just being selfish. Well, wait a minute. The Bible says that we're supposed to live out the blessings of salvation, the blessings of redemption to the praise of his glory. How's that selfish? Now, don't get me wrong. It's a great deal. You get to live in the blessings of God here on the earth. They benefit you. And you get to glorify God in the process. It's a great deal, but it's not selfish. Now, there's seven things that Paul mentions. Let me refer these to you real quickly before we close. Seven things Paul refers to. Number one is in verse 3, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Verse 4, here's the second one, according as he's chosen us in him. Verse 5, he having predestinated us under the adoption of children. Verse 6, he has made us accepted in the beloved. Verse 7, in whom we have redemption through his blood. Verse 9, having made known unto us the mystery of his will. Verse 11, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, or inheritance, literally heritage. And in verse 13 and 14, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of your inheritance. Those are seven things that Paul identifies. Seven things that he identifies that are part of God's master plan for you. Is there any area of your life he didn't cover? Is there any problem that you're facing that's not covered by one of those things? Is there any area of your life that's deficient because it's outside the bounds of one of these things? Well, then where is our problem? It's not on God's end. God's revealed to us his master plan. He's revealed to us his will, his purpose. And again, we're supposed to enjoy all of these things to the praise of his glory. Why? Because he wanted it that way. Not because he knew you wanted it that way, because he wanted it that way. Oh, that we would get a glimpse of who we are to our Heavenly Father. That's what Paul's going to pray and teach the church to pray that our eyes would be opened to the one who loves us and has done these things for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for who we are in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Father, that you have foreordained our position in him to be seated at your right hand in heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion in every name that is named. There is no problem, there is no situation, there is no circumstance, there is no attack of the enemy that's greater than the name of Jesus that's given to us because we're in Christ. Thank you, Father, that our redemption is a total redemption. Jesus said, he whom the Son has set free is free indeed, meaning free in every area. Thank you, Father, that that we are free completely, entirely, totally, free from financial trouble, free from sickness and disease, free from depression, free from every work of the enemy. Oh, we may be attacked with those things from time to time. But through faith in his word, victory will be restored. Thank you, Father, that we're more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. Thank you, Father, for your great love. Father, if there's only one prayer I could pray for us, as believers, I would pray this, that our eyes would be open to how much you love us. That our eyes would be opened, the eyes of our spirits would be open to how much you love us. And that being the reason for why you sent Jesus. Lord Jesus, we love you so much. We thank you for your willingness to suffer for us. We thank you for the shedding of your precious blood. And we recognize that through the shedding of your blood, there is remission of sins. We therefore declare that we are free, righteous, holy, without blame before our Heavenly Father. 
that we can stand before him without sense of guilt or condemnation or fear in any way whatsoever because the blood of Jesus has made us free the blood of Jesus has made us holy the blood of Jesus has made us righteous because you wanted it that way father because you wanted it that way thank you Lord for all that you've done for us help us to live up to every aspect of it every little bit to the praise of your glory in Jesus name amen amen well let's all stand hallelujah now I've got a little bit of freedom to go in Ephesians I'm off the one sentence Let's lift our hands and thank God for his goodness. Thank you, Father. We love you so much. You said because we've set our love upon you, you deliver us. Because we've known your name, you'd set us on high. You said when we call upon you, Lord, you'd answer us. That you'd be with us in trouble. You'd deliver us and you'd honor us. You said that with long life, you'd satisfy us and show us your salvation. Thank you for making it so, Father. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.